Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And Jen, I turned 59 last week. Fuck yes, Kim France. How was your birthday? Happy birthday. Thank you. My birthday was pretty nice. It was a, you know, pretty chill. Well, it wasn't a chill day. We actually went into the city. Mm-hmm. I went in to try on the dress I will be wearing to get married in. Oh my God. How do you feel in it? It's, you know what? It's a tight dress. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tight dress. It's like I haven't worn anything that it adheres to my body in the longest time. And like, it's, it's, it's like, it's not tight, like in a sausage casing way. It's just like, it's a snug dress. It's meant to, it's not meant to be diaphanous and everything I wear, I want to be diaphanous at all times. So, or just, you know, shapeless. Are you wearing Spanx? Are you going to wear Spanx on your wedding? Don't wear Spanx. You're going to hate wearing Spanx. (laughs) I'm going to wear Spanx. <laughs> Fuck yes. Fuck yes, I'm going to wear Spanx. They're going to oh. be pictures. They're going to be pictures. I know you think that makes me less feminist no, than I, I was don't. a minute ago. No, that is a lie and a half. I do not think that makes you in any way less feminist. I think it makes you more of a masochist than I would like you to be because it's uh-huh. Spanx are the fucking worst. I just found a pair of Spanx in my drawer and I was like from my corporate days and I was like, oh, fuck Spanx. You know, I've never had such a I, I, I've, I've had a more peaceful relationship to Spanx <laughs> than you, it sounds like. But I actually for this party, like it's the dress is kind of just like a, a lace overlay. So it needs a slip underneath it. Okay. Okay. And the, and the slip that I found is by Skims. All right. I do like her. I do like that. I do like Skims, man. I do. Skims, they make some nice things. And then I got from Spanx. I got the ones that are like shorts that look like they're wrestler shorts because they have the strap that goes over your <laughs> no. shoulders. No. Why? Why? <laughs> 
because it will flatten my stomach. Oh, honey. But then you, but the thing is that the stomach is going to be the whole time. Like, uh, why have you done this to me? <laughs> no, 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 no. The stomach wouldn't do it. Like my feet are going to do it with whatever okay. shoes I choose. Like okay. I can handle a little Spanx. I can handle a little like discomfort in that area. But you know, what I don't like is like when I ha- I'm wearing tights or something and they're digging into my, you know. Yes. Belly button. No, I went to the Emmys a couple of years ago through like D- Dove sent me to the Emmys. Okay. Like it was <laughs> like, it, it's like, that's the kind of, you know, the stupid like beauty, beauty company promotions. And my friend who I went with, wore Spanx under her dress. And the whole time we were like, we were sitting in the, and we saw the whole show and she was just like, I'm dying. I'm dying. Cause you know, it's like the ones that cut you actually with the, the strap ones, it's better. The ones that cut at your belly button, just cut right into your organs. Oh and yeah. It hurts. At one point we were in the bathroom and I just saw them on the floor and she left them. like <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, well <laughs> get rid of them. Yeah, no, I get it. So yeah, in short, Spanx will be, you know, if not layers of Spanx, but yeah. All right. All right. So that was part of the birthday. I went, you know, I went to go try on the dress. Paul waited in the car. Then we went to Grand Central Station, my favorite building in New York, Mm. and had lunch at the Oyster Bar. Oh, nice. Which I love, Mm -hmm. you know, I think in part because I only get there once or twice a year. Yeah. Yeah. The food was fine. Then we went uptown to my mom's briefly. We just, we had, a, we had a full day. And then that night went out to dinner with my family to have Korean barbecue. Fun. And it was, it was all in all, it was a good, but you know, I also believe in, have I discussed the concept of princess week on this podcast before? Okay. You have, but I think everyone can use a refresher on princess week. Cause I love princess week. And actually my husband now adopts princess week <laughs> that for is his for own. Him. Yes. For That's him. hilarious. <laughs> Um, so my friend Kate, her parents divorced when she was very little. This was back when people still weren't getting divorces a lot and they felt really guilty about it and wanted to figure out a way to make her birthday as special as it had been when both her parents were in the same house. So they invented something called princess week. Her parents did, right? which where they would just give her presents and make her feel special and give her cake for an entire week. It's amazing. So I'm still in princess week. Yeah. You are. You're in Princess Week, which is the time when money doesn't matter. You could just buy mm-hmm. anything you want. You could do anything you want. Go anywhere you want. <laughs> it's it's yeah. true. Princess Week could be, Princess Week could be pretty disastrous if I took it to its logical conclusion. But yeah, it ends before that can happen. But no, you know, I really, I, I haven't. I don't know how it'll be next year. Sixty is an awfully big number. Yeah, but I do feel like I'm kind of over getting bummed out on my birthday. Like. Good. We'll see next year, but I I just feel like you know how I feel. I'm I, I feel lucky to be here. Yeah, no, I think that's so good. I think it's so good, and I think we should keep this energy going. I you know, I weirdly feel similarly. I feel similarly. I'm turning fifty next week, and I feel I'm really like come to a peace with it. Like I really went through a lot of feelings about it, and now I'm kind of psyched. I'm just like, well, what if I get to be exactly what I want to be in my 50s? Like, what if that happens? Like, fuck it. I'm really, I'm kind of excited too. Oh, my 50s. My 50s were so much better than my 40s. Just so much better. 
I mean, my 30s blew. My 50s have not been that great. I was thinking about where I was 10 years ago and I was like, oh God, I was like a corporate executive, like wearing Spanx. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I've had several lives, I feel like in this decade. So yeah, we'll see what happens. And speaking of several lives and several decades, we have an exciting guest today. Yes, we do. Carlene Bauer. (laughs) Only everything we did. This was an unofficial everything is fine book club for Carlene's book, Girls They Write Songs About, which I loved, you loved. You know, we created an international audience for Carlene Bauer's. I've gotten people write to me from like Sweden who are like, I love this book. Thanks for recommending it because it is is like the quintessential Gen X friendship book I felt. Yeah, it was is a wonderful book, really a wonderful book and very um, rigorous. It's a lovely book. And anyway, so that that's a treat. That interview with her is a treat. And before we go, before we get into that, just one housekeeping note, we do have a live event coming up April 9th, 4 p.m. I know it's Easter. I'm sorry. I thought Easter was a morning thing. Everyone who's been... <laughs> Everyone, like I'm Catholic. I didn't expect you to know, but I'm Catholic. I thought Easter was a morning thing, you know, church, bunny hop, and then, you know, you can hang out with us and have a a hard kombucha at 4 p.m. But anyway, yes, we're having an Easter show April 9th at Caveat. And again, caveat, caveat, caveat NYC. Uh, The the link is in the show notes if you want to see us live in person in New York. If not, we are also doing a live stream and the live stream is not only live in that moment, but will be available for seven days. So if you're on a different time zone, which people have also emailed me about, if you're on a different time zone, you can also um, see it later at your convenience for one week. And if you're in New York, come to the live event because I think it will be really fun to meet you guys. I think it will. I'm considering it to be my birthday party. So I'm not (laughs) having a big birthday party. So I'm considering this this live event to be a birthday party. And I also want us to um, take the crew down and get drinks afterwards. Um, And, you know, TBD, what sequined outfit I'm going to be wearing. So (laughs) I've said the fact that you've upped the ante on what your own wardrobe for this event has me very anxious. I have no idea what I'm going to wear. You know what? The thing is, I'll, I will totally back down and be like, let's just match. (laughs) (laughs) That would be so good. Maybe we should match. That would be awesome. Just identical outfits. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, All right. Well, let's get into this episode. Our guest today is Carlene Bauer. Carlene is the author of the memoir, Not That Kind of Girl, the 2013 novel, Francis and Bernard, and most recently, the novel, Girls They Write Songs About, or as I like to call it, the only 2022 book that matters. Carlene earned an MA in nonfiction writing from John Hopkins University's writing seminars and has worked in and around New York publishing for decades. Her work has been published in The Village Voice, Salon, Elle, The New York Times Magazine, and on the website of N Plus One. Welcome, Carlene. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm I'm so glad to be here. Okay, so I'm just going to get it out there. I think we're all nervous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 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 really nervous to talk to you um, because I loved your book so much, and it's only after months after reading it that I can actually talk to you because I, before that I was mad at you for writing such a good book. 
that is how I know I did my job because I've had other writers, like when I've talked to other writers, like when they say like, I was so mad you wrote that book or I would, that that's how you know you won or you did mm-hmm. what you set out to do and you right. make other writers jealous. Totally. Totally. I was in, yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. You, you wrote a remarkable book. So let's just start off with girls. They write songs about, um, how did it start out? Like what happened? <laughs> that's, that's the quick, what happened? Um, I had um, watched my friendships, not all of them, but some friendships and friendships of people I was close to and not close to play out in such a way as we all progressed into and deeper into our 40s. And some of some of the tensions started to happen around like our late 30s, too. And I wanted to try to see if I could delineate those tensions and fallouts between people. And a lot of it had to do with like a a sibling rivalry that can spring up between women. Yeah. A friend of mine once, a really good friend of mine once said, like, we were talking about uh, a situation in which, like, there was a have and have not situation playing out between friends that she knew. And she said, women's friendships cannot withstand that kind of inequality. And I thought, yes, wow. that's it. And I thought, you should have written my book. No, but um, but that's, that is true. And I thought of, that's partly why I wrote the book, just try to get at what is it when one of you has something or many things and the other does not. And the way the friendship can start to crumble when the foundations that you had, the, the formed it in your youth start to dissipate. And it's sort of like the person you dream with cannot be the person who's judging you. And at a certain point in friendships, it, as you get deeper into life, you can start to judge each other rather than dream with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to try to um, try to capture. And also maybe to, I, to write about female envy and not in a way that turns into a devil wears prod. Like I think there are so many ways we write about female experience that is not true to female experience. And envy uh, is one of them. It, it doesn't have to be soap operatic. It can be really painful to harbor these feelings about someone who you desperately needed to live. Right. You know, you needed this person in your life to help you achieve what you wanted to achieve. But once you start losing your footing, because again, like someone has something you don't, you have something they don't, yeah. then it all falls apart and you have to separate <laughs> or somebody recuses themselves. And it's, it's really, it's deeply sad. Like I still go on grieving friendships that I, um, lost to this kind like whether I felt that way and couldn't do it anymore um, or whether they felt that way and they couldn't do it anymore. And, and, and often I think people don't say why it is that they're leaving. Of course, that's part of what the book is, is about envy. And competition. I mean, competition for sure. But the money thing, we don't talk about that a lot. We get into different books about class, but that specific kind of like, oh, you both wanted the same thing and one of you got it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or more than the other, or one yes. of you got more than the other. Yeah. Or when you switch, so one of you, like you both might have started out not wanting money, but as time goes on, you see that maybe one of you cares about it more than that other person may actually admit to themselves. And again, none of this is dastardly. <laughs> like none of right. nobody's unspoken, no. sort of watching each other, and especially in New York. Yes. Oh, and I wanted to say one. The other thing that made me write the books is watching Elena Ferrante become a phenomenon. And I loved those books. I loved it, so, and I I loved them so much that I could not. I have not read the fourth because I did not want that universe and story to end. And I thought, what if I tried to write? because those books are so passionate and they make so much out of very ordinary things. And I thought, what if I could try to do that in a middle class to upper middle class American version? Like, could I make people feel that as much as we all felt for that world? Did you, it it seems to me, because I really miss the nineties in New York. Like I used to say, like, I wanted to start a Tumblr called 
I preferred the 90s because yeah. I just did. But it seems to me this is we, that we share this. That is, I guess, one thing I did want to see if I could capture and to do it in a way that wasn't disturbingly nostalgic. Yeah. And I came to New York in 1997. So I was even when I arrived here, like I was aware that like all the things that happened before I got here, like in a way that it not that I didn't think it was dead, but I was very aware that the must most of the dirt had been cleaned up. Yes. And that I could walk around, luckily, like I, I could walk around and feel safe. Yes. Safe enough and um, could afford it. You know, now I would say it might be dead. And I always try to be like, is it dead? It's, I talked with my boyfriend who's been here longer than I have. Like, you know, so I've been here 25 years. He's been here longer. But like, is it dead? Are, are we old or is it dead? No, it seems dead. It's like music too. Like, is this bad or are we just old? That's so funny. So and there's so many things to miss about the 90s. And I, and I often have to, I want to interrogate always, because I'm a 90s child, I have to interrogate my own responses. Right. What is it that I miss when I miss it? Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with a certain kind of freedom. And, and the, the longer we live in the sort of culture we do, I think what I really miss is an intellectual and psychological freedom that I think is gone. And I can't say I miss the clothes because they're everywhere now. <laughs> like, right. right. Know. You know, the thing about New York is that I think maybe I wanted to try to get at the last gasp of a New York that had grit in its grandeur. Like you need, like you need both to have New York be great. You need to have the sky, skyscrapers and the hot dog carts. Right. And like that tension is what makes it so magical. And when you have too much of one and too much of the other, it doesn't, the magic's not there. I also feel like the 90s were the last time you could say to somebody, I'll meet you on the corner of 13th and 7th at four o'clock in the afternoon. See you there. I know. It really did encourage personal responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> and and intimacy and intimacy with other people in a different way, like palpable intimacy. I think that's true. And another thing I wanted to try to get at with a book, like, and the 90s might have been, I mean, this definitely seems to have been the case, the last gasp of a certain sort of office culture. Yeah. And again, like, this was another situation where, like, walking to an office in New York in the late 90s, I knew that, like, all the parties had been had. Like, it was, you know, I was just, like, walking through the embers. But doesn't but, everybody feel that way a little? Do but it, again, it's one of those things where, like, am I, maybe, maybe something did die and I was at its funeral. But you could be... <laughs> You could be collegial and, you know, just being around people. And if you were lucky, and I was lucky several times over, and I feel like I shouldn't even talk about it, I was lucky enough to be at offices, which were publishers and magazines. And I was young, or I shielded myself because I was, I did fact checking so that I knew I was recusing myself from a certain level of insanity, but, um, and pain, but um, I liked the people I worked with and they liked me. Yeah. And so when you're lucky enough to have that cocktail going on, the office can seem like a magical, magical place, like a crucible for being. And I think that I wanted to try to get at that. We also, we worked in a field where the line between business and pleasure was very thin. No, that's it, Kim. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I wonder, because this was something I thought you got really right, was publishing office culture in that time. So, I mean, I came to New York in 2000, so I'm a couple years late, but around, it's around the same time. I was also a fact checker, you know, the, the whole thing. So I I saw every single thing that was happening. Like, I, I, I felt it, right? And you get so many details precisely right, like almost too many to talk about, but particularly the relationship between a writer and editor. There's a moment where Charlotte's editing Rose that I was just like, oh my, oh my God, I remember those moments. Um, 
But you also, this disillusionment of having gone through the publishing grinder, like you play that out over a long period of time in the book. And it feels like you really felt that. Like, did you have, you're saying that you had nice jobs, but did you have unhappy jobs in publishing? Because I'm fucking assuming you did, because I did. Um, I mean, <laughs> yes, I was frustrated within my, <laughs> I could get very frustrated. But I think the frustration was, as the kids used to say, an inside job. I mean, the kids never said that there was older people. But um, I think I think that was me not being grateful or it was me not knowing how to make something great out of what I had been given. It makes sense. I just, I felt like for me, and this might not be your experience, I felt like the dream was not worthy of the dreamer. Like I got in and I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Like people were disappointing and publishing was like, go, publishing was in a dive. I mean, it was like, you know. I I think I didn't make enough of what I had been privy to. That's just me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I was raised evangelical and I come from a certain sort of, um, anyway, but I mean, not that that, I, you know what? I can't even blame it on church. I can't even blame <laughs> that on <laughs> Wait, so what would you have done differently? So what would you have done differently? What? How? Where did you not show up? No, like been not me, like been born to entirely different people, which is actually like, <laughs> I, like things I can't change. Like I can't. Um, I wish I had been braver. I wish I had pitched more. I wish I had taken myself more seriously over and over and over again. And the amount of time that I spent not taking myself, that's what I really regret. Interesting. And also, I also regret, you know, not wearing a bikini more often too. So it's like those two things, like I regret not sleep. I shouldn't say that anyway, but um, <laughs> I regret a lot. I regret much. <laughs> so like but, that. But, but, but you wrote a perfect book. You wrote a perfect book. So doesn't it e- equal out in the end? Yeah, no, like, not, like some of the things I've been talking about right now, <laughs> which, you know, I am now old enough I'll just say it. I am 50 years old. I just turned 50. And I'm an Aquarius, if anyone's asking, with deep Capricorn energies. Can you feel it? And um, I, now that I'm older, I, I have mostly come to grips to all the things I've just been talking about in the last minute or so. But um, I do feel I do feel proud of this book. And I do feel um, that things are mostly evening out. So do you, what is your relationship to ambition like now? Like you mentioned how much you felt like you won when people told you that they were jealous that you wrote that book and they were mad at you. I was, I heard Fran Lebovitz, somebody was quoting her on, on lines and she, she said something like most people shouldn't be writing. If you ever do feel the need to write, eat something sweet and see if the feeling passes. <laughs> oh my God. Like would Fran Lebovitz say that I deserve to write? Because I was thinking like I could eat a whole bag of Cheetos and still like think that I need to make, sh- make people forget Sheila Hetty ever existed. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm still really ambition. Thank you for asking that, Kim. Um, that, that seems to not die. Like even as I get sort of older and my, the fire, the fire is just a little bit dampened enough for me to proceed with grace and patience in a way that I didn't have before, but I definitely like it. It feels like that's what defines me. It is a driving thing. Like I I didn't really want to have kids and this was what I wanted to do. So, and I've done it mostly. Was turning 50 a thing for you? Jen is turning 50 next week, by the way. I'll be, t- I'm turning, I, yes, I, I will be 50 by the time this comes out. Yes. Hi, we're exactly the same age, which is, which is intense. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. I, um, I think the forties were <laughs> the difficult third album as anyway. Um, the, I think, 
<laughs> That's a friend of mine who referred to my book that way, The Difficult Third Album. Um, <laughs> <laughs> deep, like, and you've reviewed records, and I think, and I know Kim, like you, like you, I like, oh, that's such a Gen X thing to say, The Difficult Third Record. Um, you know, this is very strange to say out loud, and I, but I feel like maybe I can say this in this forum. My, my father just passed away, and um, sorry. Yeah. Thanks. That, uh, anyway, but, but that actually was more of a like, turning point than the age, I think. So um, I think it's just incumbent upon me to use whatever term I have left to like make good on what the 25 year old and 16 year old wanted. And um, I hope I don't sound too optimistic. No, but, um, you, you no, sound not you at all. You, actually, it's it's inspiring because we're usually such dark, dark bitches. So this is actually very inspiring. So am I. You're in a good mood today. So let's like go with it. So, so what I would, I because would, I think about this a lot, like I can say, it's now or never. I yeah. must make good on fill in the blank. But, you know, the culture is going to put you in a, you know, like some of what I want to realize is culture dependent. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or it won't be. It depends. And I think that's the shit of being this age. Pardon my French is, I mean, and I just, I'm just sort of arriving into this is, um, you know, it seems to me that you're just learning how to be who you are and you're just learning. You've just gotten perspective. You feel like you know exactly all the ways in which you're smart and capable and powerful and nobody gives a shit. Like that's what it seems like. Like you, I mean, it can, or it may, it might be that way that nobody wants to hear it from you. I, I, I think that we create our own reality to some degree. Like I feel like when I was 25, I thought I was smart and capable and like nobody gave a shit. And like, I feel like it's the kind of the same. No, right. <laughs> I, I mean, I have mixed feelings about that because when you said it, it really, really resonated with me. You know, there is, there is a kind of power that you feel and the kind of, you know, settledness that you feel. And, and it, it can be really exhilarating. And at the same time, I, we're not we're not young and cute anymore. I know. You know, and, and the fact, I mean, I thought I was clever all those years. I was just cute. No, come on. No, no. <laughs> I wasn't that cute. I guess I'm, I'm really giving. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> To do what you've done, you must have been. Do you know what I like? But this is. She was. She was. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break from some ads. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. 
But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. Sera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule, essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I don't know what you two think about this, but I think a lot, <laughs> being from the 90s, I think a lot about PJ Harvey, Courtney Love. Women of our generation gave the world these, I mean, at least two, like you could put Slater Kinney in there, although I, like those two women came out of their 20s sounding like ancient crones in the best possible way. And we gave the world that in our 20s, when we were barely in our 20s or somewhere in our 20s. And I, I often think, what could be a Gen X version of that for, like, is there, could we, could we give that to the world again? Like where that, the energy, because those, those songs to me, like they're timeless. Young people made them and they're timeless. Like, what is it like now that we're, have all this wisdom, what could we give a very loud, steadying wisdom? What can we give? to other people. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, that was actually something no, books like yours. Yeah. Books like, and that was, that was a question I wanted to ask you because, you know, we are exactly the same age. We're very, very in the middle of Gen X. Both of us were very strongly Gen X. And this felt like such a Gen X girl book to me, like just so much. And I was wondering, like, were you aware of the broader strokes of this generation? Like, were you trying to, were there themes you were really trying to hit in, in this about Gen X? Cause it felt like there were some like second, you know, the feminism you got into, yeah. how it failed us, what the expectation of that. So I'm just wondering if you were grappling with that when you were writing it. Yes. I wanted to see if I could record how it was to live through certain ideas and moments, uh, but not to do it in a heavy handed way, yeah. like a class portrait, but also anybody who wasn't that age, I wanted them to be able to see themselves in it too. So um, a former uh, professor of mine, um, she was, she's like almost 70 and she she really loved it. And I was a little nervous, but she loved it. And that meant a lot to me. And I've heard younger women say that it like they really loved it too. So I, I wanted it to be welcoming to anybody who 
saw themselves in it. And there have been men who really loved it too. And I always sort of feel relieved when I write a book and men are like, this was amazing, which is crazy, but that's the way we <laughs> or the head I live in. And um, no, I wanted to, yeah, I, di- I did want to do what you said. Yes. And you you did without hitting hitting you over the head with it. You absolutely did. I mean, it's it's and you also got into a lot of things about class that I have not really seen that I that really resonated with me. Um, you know, particularly going from working class into sort of white collar jobs, like making mm-hmm. that class jump and feeling like a fish out of water in so many ways and just being like, oh, well, all these people came from something different, clearly, you know, yeah, was, no. was that real life to you? Is that, yes. is that autobiographical? Okay. Yes. My parents didn't go to college. And what I sort of wanted to memorialize was that kind of strata of New York where nobody in your family wanted this, but you did. So I technically am a first generation college. I, you know, I was, I think I was like the first person in my family, both sides to graduate from college, I think. Yep. And it didn't really start to bother me until my thirties. It, I, I felt like America was a meritocracy, idiot. And um, but but the the more I knew, I'm like, oh, like going to Harvard does help. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I, like, why did I? Oh, that's what? Right. Parents who can put a down payment on your house, it helps no, a lot. No. <laughs> yes. Parents who can finance your unpaid internship. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But the book publishing that I worked in, like everybody, all the assistants I knew, like they went to NYU, like they came from Indiana, like as far as I could tell, they were paying their own bills. And yeah. I feel like people don't talk about that enough. Is that, Because all the people I knew in publishing, like nobody's parents were giving them a credit card. And But again, we were lucky enough to live in a New York where you could still, you know, you could still kind of get by without needing a lot of money, I guess. I think something that I was, I was impressed by in this book is how you deal with um, Charlotte and Rose's sex lives. Oh, uh-huh. which I think is very unapologetically, they don't always make themselves the most likable. (laughs) Could you say more about that? And you, and you, well, no, just that there, you know, there is sleeping with married men. Mm Yeah. And it is, I mean, I I had so many feelings about that. I thought it was amazing that you didn't judge for that, but I also thought there was something kind of depressing about it because it's like, they all cheat. Yeah. They all cheat. Oh, meaning the married men or everybody? Meaning the married men, yeah. yeah. Well, my experience was that I saw women doing certain things that I had been acculturated to expect of men. And I think I, many of us, you know, you get to New York and you think like, the classic cheater, and I, I want to be very careful, the classic cheater is like a, what we would now call a finance bro. Right. But as time went on, I saw that no men were the ones sort of sitting at home while the women were out. <laughs> like, wow. and I thought that's interesting because no one talked about that in the texts uh, I have read uh, for my pleasure and in school. I feel there are so many other female writers, you know, they seem to be younger or not. Actually, I don't even know if that's true, but seem to be braver about writing about sex. And I wish that I had been braver about it or more erotic about it, but who needs that? I feel like everybody's <laughs> like, maybe what's more interesting to write about is the power dynamics. Well, but also about, about I, I think what you really got at in this book was that it was less about desire than about being desired. 
Right, 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 right. Being a girl they write songs about. Yeah. And that's that felt very true to me. That felt very, very real. And I I remember that. I remember how it felt to be in that skin, you know, to be desired and how how hungry I was to be desired. Not and I didn't really wasn't really thinking about is this good sex? What's my pleasure in this? What's that? Who gives a shit? I didn't care. It was more about acquisition. It was not about, you know. That is it. And, you know, like how much of that is New York? And like whatever drug New York is giving me, I'm cool with it. That's fine. Whatever it's doing to amp up what's already in me, that's fine. Like that is really, like, is it me making me acquisitive sexually? Is there New York making me acquisitive sexually? Or is it both? Does it matter? And I think for a certain sort of woman, if you don't early on learn that you're desirable, you will be forever, well, right now, this second, wondering like, am I desirable? Yep. No, you're, 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 you're onto something. And we've, we've discussed this with other women of our generation when we had that conversation with, um, with sorry about always chasing that sort of feeling of like, oh, I'm wanted. I'm what yeah. like, cause we were in, think yeah. of the messaging we got. Like, of course we were insecure. <laughs> like, well, oh no, I, I mean, we grew up on different ad campaigns, but right. I'm thinking about the loves baby sauce ad, sauce. Yeah. I, I remember that. I remember that ad. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what remind, cause I did, I mean, I loved, I loved that scent. Remind me, Kim, of the ads <laughs> around that. Was it like soft focus? Like pink light bulb kind okay, of. Okay, yes. So it's there. It the name of this campaign was "You Can Try Hard" or "You Can Try Soft," and it's like you can try. And the song goes, "You can try hard." And there's a girl who's really brassy looking in a convertible, and she stops her car really fast to like check out the guy, and the guy's not into it, and they go, "Or you can try soft." And it's like a curly haired girl, probably Jane Modine, like riding a bicycle with a puppy in the basket. No. <laughs> Soft will make his love light shine. <laughs> Love's God. baby soft. No, <laughs> sorry, but I didn't feel like I was contributing anything to this podcast <laughs> no. today. But now I feel Are like you I kidding? am. You're oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh we were God. built to be muses. Like that's if you think about all the songs we grew up upon with, it was always like the lady is a muse. You know, like the best thing could be to be to, to be a muse in some ways, but also to bring up the, bring home the bacon and fry it up for a man. You, I mean, the Anjali commercial, like the Anjali, just <laughs> never forget it. Was advertising. Like they wrote a song that you will remember even when you're on a ventilator, like that's in the hospital. But, um, but I think, you know, I, I felt, well, it's like two things like eighties, nineties. So like in the eighties, you're like, I, I'm too fat. And then, you know, in the 90s, it was like, I'm not bitchy enough. <laughs> so it's like, you get it. Like, you, like what? And like, now I feel like, but I actually don't feel this anymore. There was a sort of a crease around, I don't know, like three years ago. I feel like, oh, wait, in the 90s, I was like, oh, I'm not, I don't, I, I respect Bikini Kill, but they're too angry. Can I say that? Like, they are geniuses, but my anger isn't that anger. Like, is that okay? It's not okay. I must not really be a feminist and then you know then a couple years ago with younger feminists like being anger or not younger but i i feminism taking up anger again i i felt like oh my god i'm not angry enough i thought i was done with this i felt like when i got to new york i I felt like the second wave has commanded me to have as much sex as i and then I, (laughs) i had this line in the book but like i took it out but like, I don't remember any, Simone de Beauvoir did not, she didn't say in the second sex, yeah. have sex with whoever you want. 
but Simone de Beauvoir herself. So there were these, so the texts may not have, you know, explicitly commanded it, but the lives of the people writing the texts commanded you to do this. So it wasn't, so by the time I got to New York and like, even in, like, even in college too, like I sort of, like, I am not like, let's, let's get one thing clear. Like I am not your muse, but I was also timid in my way. (laughs) So there was a, a the tension between, understanding that one can have these things, but then the um, individual you are, can you get those things? And maybe that tension, I hope that tension shows up in the book. It totally does. But I, I do think that that led to that, all of that ideology, all of that conditioning led to a lot of performative sluttiness. I think this still goes on. Oh, absolutely. And to see how that problem keeps happening without getting quote unquote solved. Does it need to be solved? Like we all learn things in our own time. Like, but that, I think I shouldn't say that, but like the, the prevalence of kink, like even in ads, I'm like, that's more pressure on people. Yeah. We were just talking about this. Yes. When I see that word on the internet, on a subway ad, I think, Pity the poor young person who has to experience living in the gap between this made-up ideal and the person they are. And until we solve for that gap, which we never will, because I don't think, we will still go on experiencing pain around sex. And the lies we are complicit in around sex, I think, are really... It's like the only way we have to measure a person's braveness. It's like we simultaneously want it to mean nothing at all, but yet we use it as the only reliable measurement of how strong a person you are. Will you do this sex thing? I'm sorry. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. So I think that, um, you can have an extremely liberated class of young people, you know, we, and I think we thought that we were, you know, at the cutting edge of, you know, but you, but the tension between what your culture asks you to do and what you, the individual, feel prepared to do is very different. That's why I tried to write, I mean, this book doesn't speak to that, but there's, right. what I want to try to get at is that tension between what you understand your culture to be asking you to do, and I didn't do it completely in the book, and what you, the, in, the individual, actually feels like as a human in your body, in your mind. Right. I mean, this is such a this is such a deep and and rich topic. Uh, Christine Emba wrote a whole book called Rethinking Sex about from the '60s to today, and I've it's really good. And like one of the things, like I've interviewed someone recently who was saying, like, because this has been going on, you know, at least since the sexual revolution, at least since fear of flying, yes. like, right? Yeah. The the i the idea of what we're supposed to be is not caught up to how we actually feel, and. One no. one of the women I interviewed from that from the seventies was like the the only thing you couldn't be in the seventies was a person who wanted to be in a monogamous relationship with a man. No, right, 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 right. Like that was so uncool to be that. And I I think it's interesting though. I do think that this generation, Gen the the generation now Gen Z at least is at least trying to think about what they who they authentically are, their identities. And what they want and talking to each other about sex. And there's much more idea of consent. So I I do think there's been progress. It's just never that much. No, right, right. But I mean, I... I think it would be like, I was such a naive kid. I was so late to everything sexual. Like it would be hard for me if I was a kid. I mean, I think that there must be a lot of pressure to be like down with what your program is now at a very young age. I do. I do have a um, soft spot in my heart for the late bloomer. 
because I think there's a certain sort of, there, there can be pain around it. But wait, let's talk about childlessness a little bit, right? Because that's something you super explore in the book. And it's something I think you said earlier, you knew you didn't want to do. And that was, for a woman of our generation, a really bold stance. Did you always know that? How did you, how did you grapple with that? I, um, I think I knew from probably around like seven or eight that I wanted to go out into the world and work and do something. And I knew that I wanted to be an artist of some kind. Yeah, I think it got harder. I mean, and I say this in the book, like I felt very, you know, like I had no ambivalence about my decision to not do that, um, to not have kids. Like I thought I was going to have um, a very fulfilling life. I was going to fill it up with all kinds of things. My work would fill me. I would be a, an amazing writer and be, if not famous, then uh, well-respected in a way that got me out of the house a lot. And um, I, uh, once I got into my thirties and you see people like having kids, you're like, should I have done this? And so what was happening was that people were having children at the same time that I was questioning, like, was I right to have put all my eggs in this basket? Like the writing thing isn't, it isn't working out quite the way I wanted it to. And then you start to look at what other people have and think I should have, I should have done that. That seems like a much easier and quicker route to self-fulfillment and um, figuring out what your reason for living is if you have small people around you and a husband or a partner. And that's when I started to wonder, maybe I had been stupid to not want that. And I still, I think, I think that often with childlessness, and I could be wrong about this, but I feel like you have to be really, it's like sort of with abortion too, which is like, you have to be really, you have to denounce with childlessness. I think you have to come down really hard on not wanting kids. I feel like there's a certain sort of rhetoric around it, Yeah. but I feel I, I regret it sometimes Yeah. because it, it also took me this long to realize that maybe I could have been a good mother. And I would have really loved it. You know, I, I'm childlessness. <laughs> I'm childless, not entirely by choice. Um, as the years have gone by, I've begun to realize that it actually was a choice. Like I, I could have, it, it could have happened. I didn't, and that I actually, like, as as I get older, I used to feel like the hole was getting bigger, or that those feelings were, and now I feel like no, it's actually contracting again. Right. Did it? I feel like that might be happening. Do you know? Is there a number of years, Kim? You can talk about the contracting. <laughs> I'm 59. I'm 59. I just turned 59. So I would say that yeah, my 30s were very were well. I was still married in my 30s, and children were a possibility. Then I got divorced, and I just knew I didn't want to do it alone. And those were very hard years in my 40s because I was very aware. My friends had kids late, so I had a lot of friends with small children. I was acutely aware of what I didn't have, and like you know what you were saying earlier is really true. Although you didn't really use you didn't use these words, but like having children slaps a meaning onto your life, right? Whether you want it or not. It's and, and, and if you don't have children, you can become convinced that that's the only route to a certain kind of meaning, a certain kind of selflessness, you know, and it, it's take, I used to always tell the story about my brother being in Paris at the same time as my brother. And he had small children, one of whom wanted to go to the top of the Eiffel Tower. So he waited for four hours in line. And I was like, that's just a kind of reflexive selflessness that you don't have if you don't have children. You can be really selfish if you don't have children. And more than one person has said to me, like, you can be really selfish and be a parent. 
I wouldn't have waited in that fucking line. There's no way. I, w- I would have been like, we're coming back at midnight. And that's actually what I did. I was like, see it at night, kid. <laughs> I always like grab onto stories that I hear of like parental non-selflessness or like parental, like if I hear about parents who are still doing X, Y, like doing the things you imagine parenthood would um, dissolve, like they're still doing it. Like I, I, I hoard them because I feel like, oh, good. Like I, you can, you can be, you can be a flawed person with or without children. Like there, and I think you don't have children. You can put this burden on yourself of thinking just what you said, Kim, like somehow it creates selflessness that you don't already have. Yeah. I mean, look, I think we, I think we get to a certain age and we look back over this sort of map of our lives and we're like, oh, I kind of regret that turn and I regret that one. And it doesn't matter what you did. Like you regret marriages, you regret having children, even if you love them. Like it, we don't talk about that shit enough. And I've said it on the podcast a million times that motherhood is a scam. I adore my child, like could not love them more. I am so excited that they are in the world. Raising them is a huge pain in the ass. And it's just the truth. <laughs> like, And I don't know why more people don't talk about it, or maybe more p- other people are better suited to it than I am, but I'm good at it. And I'm aware of that. See, but I'll never believe it doesn't change you foundationally. It doesn't. I'm I'm here to tell you. I'm here to tell you as a person who like snuck out last night after being so frustrated. I'm 50 years old and I snuck out to smoke weed to run away from my child. <laughs> it never changes. <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, there was a person in the house, but like I wasn't like abandoning, but I was like, God, he's got I'm a teenager. I you know what I mean? It doesn't change. Have you seen any quote unquote representations in the culture of that kind of I mean, like I guess I could think of them like of that that show that motherhood is a scam. I mean, I can't even believe I have to ask this. I should know this myself. I mean, better, better things, better things gets at it. Better things gets at it perfectly. Like you love them. You're, you're there for them. You could not want to show up more. You're so happy they're alive and they treat you like shit. (laughs) You're reminding me why another reason why I didn't have them. It seemed like so futile to give birth to something that would hate you from maybe year 12 to, I don't know, 80, who can say? And that, I think I just wanted to um, avoid that altogether. You, You can hate them. Just because you're a small human, not because of anything they're doing. No, the other day my kid said, I, I hate you over something because I was setting a boundary around some rule or some discipline bullshit. And I was like, I don't expect you to like me. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm not here for that. Jen, I might not have had the cojones live in that world work one trench. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'd be like, she hates me. They hate me. He hates me. And now that I'm like, I'm, you know. 50. Like, I feel like I could occupy that space and and not care that someone in my small space hates me. Go with God. The other thing we don't talk about is that there is a narcissism in parenting that we don't talk about enough, right? And especially in the age of social media, everyone's just showing you these like, it's just, I can't imagine to not, because I look at these pictures uh, people show on social media and I was like, I know the truth because I, I have one and I know the truth. But to people who don't have kids, you must be like, oh, that looks so nice and cozy. No, I I, I, I try not to watch TikTok ever, but one of my one of my favorite TikTok videos, uh, genres is the toddler learning to say words. <laughs> I could watch toddlers learning to say words forever. No, I, the part that I do, one of the things I used to 
I wish that I had had a child in order to be like at the science experiment years, like, oh, it's a, it's a human yeah. learning how to be human. Fascinating. It doesn't hate me yet. <laughs> yes. Those years are, those years are good. But how, like, but wanting that is like being like, I really love kittens. And in five months, you're going to have a giant fat cat. Like, it's like, I was just going to ask you, what is it? What is it that you still want to do? I want to write more books until I drop dead. <laughs> like, I think like that's, and be a good daughter and be a good partner and be a good friend. And, and I want to go to Japan. I don't know what the like, things I haven't done. No, I want to go to Japan. Well, but have you been ever? I've never been. And I could have gone in the Condé Nast years. I could have gone on their dime. Oh. It's one of my, like, if you want to talk about like major regrets that I can like torture myself with, like the free trip to Japan, like done really nice, oh. never happened. Well, thank you for doing this. This has been amazing. We look, we could talk to you. I feel like we could talk to you for like three more hours. <laughs> I feel about you both, but I don't. And I mean that sincerely. And I, I really, I am so grateful that you both asked me on. And um, I, I really have, this did not, this felt like something more than an interview. And um, that's a testament to you both. I would love to talk to you again, but I also, um, I just understand how life works. <laughs> so oh, um, we want to be your friend. Totally. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, we're, we're forcing you. This is, <laughs> this is the first step in friendship. That's what we do. <laughs> is that what happens when people come? <laughs> yeah. We're like, who do you, who do you want to be friends with? Let's call them up, have them on. <laughs> there are a couple episodes you were both talking about loneliness in a way that really uh, spoke to me. And I, I would love to have drinks with you both, but like, again, like I don't want to sound like an 18 year old kid who doesn't, again, doesn't understand how the world works. Let's do it. Let's do it. Jen's going to be in New York. We're doing a live show in like a couple weeks. Oh, where? Yeah. April 9th um, at Caveat NYC. We're doing on Clinton street. We're coming in and then we're going to all have drinks at a bar is my plan. Oh my God. Well, I'll, I'll come to that. Carlene, you've been a delight. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> yeah. I'm really embarrassed. I got to get out of here because this is so great. But, um, but thank you both. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms. It really makes a difference, especially on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support the production of the show, help us keep the lights on. Go to patreon.com backslash everything is fine. We do live events there sometimes. We blog there sometimes. It's really, it's just to help us pay for production. If you want to follow us on social media, we are at EIF Podcast on Instagram. We're on Facebook with a private and robust Facebook group. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. If you want to email us with any feedback, you can email us at everythingisfinethepodcast at gmail.com. I think that's right. You can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. You can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. The show is mixed and edited as usual by the great Natalie Rivera. Thank you, Natalie. And we'll be back next week. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.